Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. Each episode of our series features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting the fruits of his philosophical research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Nathan Smith, who teaches at Houston Community College, giving a paper entitled, How Descartes' Method of Discovery Shapes His Concept of Corporeal Nature. Um, since the, I gave the title, I've, I've changed it, so the new title's on here, but um, I mean a little bit, right? So just emphasis. Connections between Descartes' mathematical methods and his concept of corporeal nature. In the synopsis to the meditations, Descartes writes that one of his primary aims is to demonstrate the immortality of the soul. In order to make such a demonstration, he argues, we need to have a concept of the soul that is, quote, as clear as possible and also quite distinct from every concept of body, end quote. He adds, it is also necessary to have, quote, a distinct concept of corporeal nature. He notes that the reader will find such a concept partially in Meditation 2, but then more fully in Meditations 5 and 6. Later in the synopsis, Descartes describes Meditation 5 as the place to find an account of corporeal nature in general. It's sometimes taken for granted that Descartes considers nature to be fundamentally mathematical, or that his natural philosophy is just some form of applied mathematics. Yet this characterization obscures a great deal. My goal in the paper is to clarify what Descartes means by this concept. I start with Meditation 5, where Descartes provides something of a definition. This is the first quote. And now it is possible, he says, for me to achieve full and certain knowledge of countless matters, both concerning God himself and other things whose nature is intellectual, and also concerning the whole of that corporeal nature which is the subject matter of pure mathematics. <clears throat> that last phrase recurs at the beginning of Meditation 6. Quote, but besides that corporeal nature, which is the subject matter of pure mathematics, there is something else that I habitually imagine, such as colors, sounds, taste, pain, and so on, though not so distinctly. In these passages, Descartes defines at least some aspect of corporeal nature as, he says, the subject matter of pure mathematics. Corporeal nature in this sense, accepting for the moment colors, sounds, taste, pain, and so on, will be proved to exist outside the mind and to be the cause of the various sensations we have. This is Meditation 6. Pure mathematics, in turn, is the classical name for arithmetic and geometry, as distinguished from mixed mathematical sciences such as astronomy, music, optics, and mechanics. But is Descartes saying that the material things that cause sense perceptions are part of arithmetic and geometry? Such a claim may be consistent with the supposed mathematization of nature that is said to be typical of the scientific revolution. And yet, as recent scholarship has shown, such a characterization is overly hasty and simplistic. What Descartes appears to be claiming is that corporeal nature can be understood in some sense according to pure mathematics. In the principles, he's clear. Quote, the nature of matter or body considered in general consists not in its being something which is hard or heavy or colored or which affects the senses in any way, but simply in its being something which is extended in length 
breadth, and depth. Though Descartes expressed similar views throughout his work, he is clear in the principles that corporeal nature can be represented fully and essentially using only geometrical figures. Yet what motivates Descartes to think that corporeal nature can be understood entirely by mathematics? How can he rule out other qualities and characteristics that may exist in corporeal nature, for example, forces, forms, or unknown properties that may be described by future mathematical sciences? I suggest that at least part of the reason why Descartes thinks corporeal nature is essentially mathematical may be found in his writings on mathematics and method, but that this influence is a complicated one. In effect, what I want to do is unfold the varied and shifting motivations from within Descartes' work on mathematics and method for conceiving of corporeal, the way he, corporeal nature the way he does. I will use his proposed definition as a guide, namely that corporeal nature is the subject matter of pure mathematics. And first I want to note that the English translation obscures features of this definition that will be important for the discussion. In Latin, he writes, Illa natura corporea quae est puri mathesios objectum. Here mathematics is rendering mathesis, while subject matter is translating objectum. In both cases, there's some subtle distinction in language that ought to be recognized. So the paper is going to proceed in four parts. First, talk about corporeal nature. Second, objectum. Third, mathesis. And finally, some discussion of Descartes' writings on mathematical method. Corporeal nature. The words corporea, corpus, race corporea, race materia, are frequently used throughout Descartes' writings, but the specific phrase natura corporea is not. Almost all of the 18 instances of the phrase occur in the Meditations and Principles. There's one mentioned in a letter to Plempius in 1637 where he differentiates bodies that lack a rational soul from those that possess one. He calls the former corporeal natures and the latter spiritual. In the Meditations and Principles, the phrase more clearly picks out a category of entities that Descartes distinguishes from thought. So in Meditation 1, Descartes uses the phrase corporeal nature in general to describe the simple and general characteristics that would remain true even in a dream world. This is, uh, um, oh no, this is not on your sheet. This class appears to include corporeal nature in general and its extension, the shape of extended things, the quantity or size or number of these things, the place in which they exist, the time through which they may endure, and so on. In this context, corporeal nature describes the category of things that are epistemically more certain than sensory perceptions, because knowledge of these qualities persists even through the dream hypothesis, where extramental reality is thrown into doubt, so their epistemic status is more secure. It may also be instructive to consider why Descartes writes in the synopsis that meditation too will develop a partial account of the concept of corporeal nature, even though that med meditation never uses the phrase. Recall that meditation too, after establishing with absolute certainty that, the, that I exist, insofar as I am presently thinking, Descartes recognizes that he, quote, cannot stop thinking that, quote, the corporeal things of which images are formed in my thought are known with much more distinctness than this puzzling eye which cannot be pictured in the imagination. Consequently, Descartes goes on to consider his knowledge of those corporeal things whose images are seemingly so clear. This examination results in the famous examples of the ball of wax and the men in hats and coats walking in the square. 
What Descartes ultimately discovers is that the perception of corporeal things, which was thought to be so clearly depicted in the imagination, was upon examination quite confused. Instead, in a remarkable passage at the end of Meditation 2, he writes, and this is the second passage, I now know that even bodies are not strictly perceived by the senses or the faculty of imagination, but by the intellect alone, and that this perception derives not from their being touched or seen, but their being understood. And in view of this, I know plainly that I can achieve an easier and more evident perception of my own mind than of anything else. This partial account of corporeal nature reveals several important components of Descartes' view. First, he concludes that despite appearances, corporeal natures are known less certainly than the mind itself. Second, he clarifies that the mind knows itself through pure intellection, whereas the type of knowledge the mind has of corporeal natures is mediated by its connection to the body. There's some other references in the meditations, but I'm going to skip to the principles. This is the next uh, quote on, the pa- on your handout. Where he, this is the end of part two, where he writes, I recognize no matter in corporeal things apart from that which the geometers call quantity and take as the shape of their, as the object of their demonstrations. That is that to which every kind of division, shape, and motion is applicable. Moreover, my consideration of such matter involves absolutely nothing apart from these divisions, shapes, and motions. And even with regard to these, I admit as true only what has been deduced from indubitable common notions so evidently that it is fit to be considered as a mathematical demonstration. Here the principles make clear why Descartes understands corporeal nature to pick out a meaningful and distinct class of entities that are characterized by possessing only mathematical properties. These entities are epistemically and metaphysically distinct from modes of thought or mind. Epistemically, corporeal nature in this sense is known with greater clarity and distinctness than obscure and confused sense perceptions. Metaphysically, corporeal nature has no part of thought, the defining attribute of mind. It is wholly reducible to properties that can be treated mathematically. What may remain unclear is why Descartes divides nature the way he does. Specifically, it may remain unclear why he considers all of bodily and material nature to be exhaustively comprehended by their mathematical properties. Section two, objectum. The word objectum is not a common Latinate word, and it is not used extensively in Descartes. In the broader Latin world, the word appears to emerge as a neologism in philosophical writings in the 13th and 14th centuries. Objectum is not mentioned in many of the classical dictionaries where it is, where when it is, it is given a meaning, an objection or charge. The etymology of the word suggests something that is set out or cast apart from. In the 13th and 14th centuries, it seems to acquire the meaning similar to the English word object or goal, but had a specific application to the object that specifies and motivates a power or appetite. Aquinas famously has a theological interpretation of objectum, objectum where it is characterized, where it characterizes charity and the desire for eternal beatitude. What Descartes does with the word objectum, which may have some historical precedent, I think it's an interesting project I have, was not able to, haven't yet pursued, is to construe objectum as a desideratum for knowledge rather than an object or goal of desire or appetite. 
For Descartes to make natura an objectum is to define nature in terms of its intelligibility. On this view, nature is not some separable and independent set of entities, but is construed as that which can be understood according to <coughs> specified epistemic restrictions. Throughout his work, Descartes maintains that certainty or clarity and distinctness is the criterion of truth and intelligibility. For instance, in Meditation 5, famously, Descartes writes, I have drawn the conclusion that everything which I clearly and distinctly perceive is of necessity true. This standard allows Descartes to establish the truth and independence of mathematics. It also enables him to draw the further inference that is the focus of our study, namely that now it is possible for me to achieve full and certain knowledge of countless matters, including the whole of that corporeal nature, which is the objectum of pure mathesis. So the use of objectum in this phrase follows directly from the way Descartes delimits and defines truth as certainty. In the principles, when Descartes follows the same line of reasoning, this is on your handout, 130, it follows from this, namely the fact that everything we perceive, we clearly perceive is true, that the light of nature or faculty of knowledge which God gave us can never encompass any objectum which is not true insofar as it is indeed encompassed by this faculty. That is, insofar as it is clearly and distinctly perceived. For God would deserve to be called a deceiver if the faculty which he gave us was so distorted that it mistook the false for the true. Though the translators chose to render objectum as an object in this passage, it is clear that Descartes does not mean for it to refer to some particular entity insofar as it exists outside of our knowledge of it. Quite the opposite. Objectum is taken as that which is possible, which it is possible for the mind to encompass in its thought. And Descartes reasons that as long as the mind grasps such an objectum clearly and distinctly, then it is impossible for it to be false. This says nothing about the many entities that may exceed the grasp of the mind or even those that the mind is incapable of grasping, except in an obscure and confused way. Um, as David Lochterman uh, puts it, the objectum in the Cartesian idiom refers to the subject matter of a discipline, a field of intellectual concentration, as it were, held in place and shaped by the sustained methodological attentions of the mind. An objectum, far from being an entity or class of entities standing on its own, is just what method requires in response to its objectives. So the methodological import of objectum in Descartes recalls his early writings on method from um, the Reguli ad Directionem in Guinea, or the Rules for the Direction of the Mind. Though I don't wish to draw a direct line from the early, this early and unfinished work to his mature philosophy, these early writings demonstrate Descartes' sustained focus on the connection between a certain field of knowledge and a way of knowing, namely certainty. In Rule 2, Descartes asserts, quote, all knowledge is certain and evident cognition, from which he goes on to conclude that, quote, out of all the sciences so far devised, we are restricted to just arithmetic and geometry if we stick to this rule. He criticizes the merely probable syllogisms of the schools as being ineffective means for arriving at certain and evident cognition. And he highlights the intuitive validity of mathematics as well as the certainty of deductions. 
While the mature works clearly extend certainty beyond arithmetic and geometry to corporeal nature, as we've been discussing, the early <clears throat> emphasis on certain and evident cognition bears on Descartes' account of clarity and distinctness as the criterion of knowledge. Moreover, Descartes' reason, so the, um, this connection between certainty and clarity and distinctness is, I think, the important thing. And here are the reasons why. This is also from uh, on your handout there, rule two. These considerations make it obvious why arithmetic and geometry prove to be much more certain than other disciplines. They alone are concerned with an object or objectum so pure and simple that they make no assumptions that experience might re render uncertain. They consist entirely in deducing conclusions by means of rational arguments. Here Descartes recognized that what makes arithmetic and geometry apt for scientia, which he defines as certain and evident cognition, is their restriction to a certain field or domain of investigation. And this reinforces the notion that Descartes sets up a methodological criterion for what can be known, a standard of knowledge, and he takes that standard to define the range of possible objects of knowledge. Okay, I'm gonna skip. There's some other references to objectum in the reguli that are interesting, but I will skip those for the, in the interest of time. On to mathesis. Okay. So the words mathesis or matheseos are usually translated as mathematics, even though the two concepts might be subtly distinct. Generally, Latin writers use the word mathematica to refer to specific mathematical disciplines, whereas they use mathesis. Mathesis tends to be used in contexts where mathematics is be being considered as a general body of knowledge, especially when issues of education and learning are under discussion. And there's also a specific history of using this word mathesis in the 16th century, the sort of Renaissance sort of tradition of reviving Greek concepts. Um, and, and, and in the 16th century, it comes to, uh, to re refer to this attempt to revive what's called a genuine art of discovery, or what was called analysis and, and sometimes dialectic in the classical tradition this time with the aid of contemporary mathematical techniques. So the Latin word mathesis is a transliteration of the Greek, mathesios, and that the Greek roughly means something like an act of learning, what is learned, or a way of acquiring knowledge, sometimes especially connected to learning in the mathematical sciences. Um, in Greek, a mathematikos is just someone who is fond of learning. I mean, also a mathematician, but has a more general sense. So Descartes notes this close etymological relation between mathesis and discipline in the reguli. Um, and he also notes its legacy from what he calls the true mathematics of Pappus and Diophantus, who he claims suppressed their methods of discovery out of cunning or deceit, or conceit, sorry, not deceit, conceit. So, some commentators have claimed that there's no conceptual difference between mathematics and mathesis, while others argue there's a strict distinction between the two terms in Descartes' works. For the purposes of this discussion, I've retained the Latin. Um, there are reasons to question whether mathesis is a technical philosophical term entirely distinct from mathematics in Descartes. Unlike other technical Latin terms that he uses, 
he never cites the Latin in when he's writing in French. Um, nonetheless, when he's writing in Latin, he uses both Mathematica and Mathesis in the same passages, which suggests that there is a distinction in the way he's thinking about these things. And in particular, we'll look at a couple of ex uh, longer passages where he appears to approach a, a kind of technical definition of this term. Um, famously in the Reguli, Descartes forefronts a concept that he calls, or that's known, that he takes from the 16th century tradition called the Mathesis Universalis, which is a kind of foundational science of the math, a foundation of the mathematical sciences. Um, some scholars have claimed that Descartes abandoned this project early in his career. There's a new, it's kind of interesting actually, really one of these remarkable things in Descartes' studies that we actually discovered a new <coughs> manuscript of the Reguli. And there seems now people are saying, it hasn't yet been published, it was um, discovered almost 2011, 2012. But um, now it seems the suggestion is that this Mathesis Universalis passage might have come later, not earlier, so that original hypothesis was, might be completely wrong. But at any rate, this word Mathesis recurs in his writings in interesting places all the way through, up through the principles. Um, and and it, it, it appears multiple times in his letters, even right around 1640 when he's composing the meditations. And in that, in that correspondence, he's referring to a number of contemporaneous works on geometry and method, and he's, he's, uh, he's providing his, his commentary on that. By mentioning these, these, these uses of the term across Descartes' development, I don't want to collapse changes and shifts in Descartes' thought. Instead, I emphasize that throughout those changes, this concept seems to hold a place of importance. So I want to turn to this, this key passage from Rule 4 there in your, on your handout. He says, I began my investigation by inquiring what exactly is generally meant by that term, mathesios, and why it is that not only those sciences just mentioned, namely arithmetic and geometry, but also astronomy, music, optics, mechanics, among others, are called branches of mathematics. When I considered the matter more closely, I came to see that the exclusive concern of mathesis is with questions of order and measure. And it is irrelevant whether the measure in question involves numbers, shapes, stars, sounds, or any other object, whatever. This made me realize that there must be a general science which explains all the points that can be raised concerning order and measure, irrespective of the subject matter. And that this science should be termed a mathesis universalis, a venerable term with a well-established meaning, for it covers everything that entitles these other sciences to be called branches of mathematics. And again, then he's using mathematici in that, in, when he refers to mathematics, which I think suggests a distinction between those two terms. In this passage, Descartes defines Mathesis Universalis as a general science of order and measure, characterized by universal application to any objectum, again, the word objecto, whether purely mathematical or material. The same principles that are applicable to arithmetic and geometry ought to apply to astronomy, music, optics, and mechanics as well, he reasons since this science is concerned only with order and measure irrespective of the subject matter. 
The classical view of mathematics was that the branches of mathematics could be grouped into two categories. There's the pure mathematics, arithmetic and geometry on the one hand, and mixed mathematics, astronomy, music, optics, mechanics, and so on. One of the main innovations of corpuscularian natural philosophy, the sort of the philosophy that's paradigmatic of the scientific revolution or the, uh, the atomists of the 17th century, was to construe all of corporeal nature or matter as in some sense definable in terms of shapes and motion. So while many would have thought it possible to reduce mixed mathematics to geometry, it was still considered to be impossible to combine the geometrical sciences with the arithmetical sciences. Yet Descartes' mature work on algebraic geometry in effect accomplishes this task. And even early on, he envisioned that possibility. Granted that methods enabling him to treat geometrical problems arithmetically would take time, in the Reguli, he importantly recognized that goal. Nevertheless, he was also aware that further reduction of physical problems to mathematical ones would require some experimental and mechanical inferences beyond mathematics. In Rule 8 of, this, of the Reguli, when he's discussing the method for discovering the sine law of refraction, um, which describes the ratio of the angle of incidence to the angle of refraction through any medium, here Descartes recognizes the limits of mathesis. This is Rule 8. If, say, someone whose studies are confined to mathematics, here mathematici, tries to find the line called the anaclastic in optics. That's the line that takes parallel rays and, and, and focuses them to a single point. And it was instrumental for grinding lenses. This was how you, I mean, this is the way a glasses work, right? Um, this, if, if a person tries to discover this, he will easily see that the determination of this line depends on the ratio of the angles of refraction to the angles of incidence. But he will not be able to find out what that ratio is since it has to do with physics rather than with mathesis. Here Descartes recognizes that mathematics has an application to physical problems, but that this application is not immediate. In the case of shaping lenses to focus rays of light to a single point, the scientist requires in addition to mathematical knowledge, knowledge of the material he's working with through experimental methods. In the conversations with Berman, a recorded dialogue with a Dutch student and Cartesian Franz Berman, Descartes is reported to have used the word mathesis multiple times in answering a question about the epistemology of mathematics. Just preceding this passage, which is from the conversations of Berman on your handout, Berman asked Descartes whether mathematical objects are not just like chimeras or fictional entities, and Descartes responds, everything in a chimera that can be clearly and distinctly conceived is a true entity. It is not fictitious since it has a true and immutable essence. And this essence comes from God just as much as the actual essence of other things. Thus, all the demonstrations of mathematics deal with true entities and objects, and the complete and entire object of mathesis, and again, objectum mathesis, is, and everything it deals with, is a true and real entity. This object, objectum, has a true and real nature just as much as the object of physics itself. The only difference is that physics considers its object not just as a true and real entity, but also as something actually and specifically existing. Mathesis, on the other hand, considers its object merely as possible, that is, as something which does not actually exist in space, but is capable 
of so doing. This passage links the doctrine from Meditation 5, that the clarity and distinctness of mathematics reveals their true and immutable nature, with a modal claim about the status of mathematics and physics. Much more could be said about that. In fact, I think it's a really interesting issue, but uh, that's for another day. Here I want to note that the passage appears to suggest a distinction between mathesis and mathematica along the lines very similar to the Rule 4 passage. So these conversations with Berman occur very late in Descartes' life, um, after he's written the principles. Um, and so it's interesting that this, er this rule from the unpublished work that's, very, that's much earlier, we don't know the exact date, mm -hmm. but probably around 1630, this, this notion appears again um, closer to 1650. So it's very uh, interesting. I think this, this suggests there's something, uh, at least a consistency in, in his concern here. Um, so here mathematics refers to the specific mathematical sciences and mathesis refers to a more universal project. And it, this passage also reinforces the role of objectum in terms of delimiting that field of knowledge, whether it's the objectum of mathesis or the objectum of physics. Okay. So finally, on mathesis, I want to address the use of mathesis in the meditations and principles. In those works, there are only a few uses of the word, unlike in the reguli and the conversations where the, there's, there's, there's several in those short passages. But these uses seem to be significant. So six of the seven times Descartes uses the word mathesis in the meditations and replies, he uses it in that phrase, the objectum of pure mathesis. Granted, two of those instances are actually in the replies and they're quoting the meditations, but the only other use of mathesis in the meditations employs a very similar phrase. In Meditation 5, Descartes writes, quote, I always held that the most certain truths of all were the kind which I recognize clearly in connection with shapes or numbers or other items relating to arithmetic or geometry or in general to pure and abstract mathesis. So here again, even in this other passage, Descartes modifies mathesis with pura and he again acknowledges that mathesis is abstract and general. Similarly, the only mention of mathesis in the principle occurs in the heading of the final section of part two, which is the part on the principles of material things. Um, there Descartes writes, the only principles which I accept or require in physics are those of geometry and pure mathesis. These principles explain all natural phenomena and enable us to provide quite certain demonstrations regarding them. So that's the heading of um, the, the same passage that I quoted earlier from the principles. That's principles 264, where he refers to corporeal nature. So again, corporeal nature and this notion of pure mathesis are connected in the principles. So the references to mathesis in the meditations and principles are less frequent but remarkably consistent. In every case, Descartes uses the word to indicate a pure, abstract, or general set of ideas or principles that are both utterly certain and capable of explaining material or corporeal things. While there's no explicit reference back to the project of a mathesis universalis, it is clear that he uses the term in these locations to identify a generalized mathematical knowledge with general application to problems in mathematics and physics. Okay, so let's look at some of the writings on mathematics, mathematical method. This is the final section. There is no 
Cartesian method. Instead, there are many methods. For instance, the four rules outlined in the Discourse on Method and the methodological doubt that's central to the meditations are not clearly identical. While methodological doubt may be one way to adhere to the four rules of the discourse, clearly it presents a novel way to go about it. Um, similarly, Descartes has a number of ways of talking about method, specifically as it relates to mathematics and the science of nature. To add to the confusion around method in, in Descartes' studies, he frequently announces his methodological claims in grandiose fashion, in fashion, lending to the idea that there is an overarching account of method tying these, ideas, these things together. So what is clear is that Descartes has a consistent and sustained focus on articulating a method for resolving a set of core problems in mathematics and science. What is unclear is whether each articulation of the method is coherent with the others. So I'm going to go through a series of different methods that Descartes kind of announces to sort of give us a, uh, a range of things that we, could, we can consider. So first, the first and clearest one is this announcement of a new science or method. And it, it occurs in a letter to Beekman, Isaac Beekman, in, in uh, 1619, so very, very early on. Um, <clears throat> Descartes is, uh, is 25, 23 at that stage, so he's quite young. Let me be quite open with you about my project. What I want to produce is not something like Lowell's Ar Ars Brevis, but rather a completely new science which would provide a general solution to all equations involving any sort of quantity, whether continuous or discrete, each according to its nature. This exchange with Beekman follows their meeting and collaboration a year earlier. Descartes had acquired from Beekman an appreciation of the way mathematics could be applied to natural philosophy by conceiving of material things as composed of corpuscles that interact according to mathematical and mechanical laws. For Beekman, Descartes had the mathematical acumen that led him to believe he could resolve many of these vexing problems of natural, these natural <laughs> philosophical problems. Descartes' method at this stage was guided by versions of classical geometry. There's some places in Beekman's journal where he actually outlines examples of this. Um, he, he uses these elaborate compasses to try to, to determine proportionate line lengths and, and, and solve uh, uh, problems of of, of proportion between uh, unknown numbers. So classical geometers had experimented with lots of compasses, these types that were mechanical compasses for drawing solutions to problems. One of the things people, I think, don't often uh, uh, appreciate about classical geometry is that to, have, to, to consider yourself to have solved a problem in geometry, what you had to do was actually draw the solution. So, uh, so you, it was a construction that was required. And then there were rules for how that construction could be done. And the preferred rule is that it be done in the most simple way using only a ruler and compass. But they recognized that some problems couldn't be resolved that way. And so they devised these compasses that they knew were disallowed. But they, so they called them transcendental compasses. And, <laughs> uh, anyway, so, all right. So Descartes has his own compasses that he builds, and then he has his own justification for why they're acceptable in the geometry. But a similarly ambitious project, so that's the first one. This is the uh, entirely new science. 
then a similarly ambitious project is described in the first half of Rule 4, which is what we, we had cited before in talking about the methesis universalis. But in the first half of the rule, he describes this thing that he calls a universal method, or simply another discipline. Some scholars believe that this method can be united with the Mathesis Universalis, that they're describing the same thing. Others reject that. I'm, I'm, I follow generally this, uh, two commentators, Sazaki and Rabouin, who uh, recognize that there's a clear connection between these two things, but they also recognize that they are very different articulations of it. So <clears throat> to read this passage on the universal method in your handout. But if one attends closely to my meaning, one will readily see that ordinary mathematics is far from my mind here. That it is quite another discipline I am expounding, and that these illustrations are more its outer garments than its inner parts. This discipline should contain the primary rudiments of human reason and extend to the discovery of truths in any field whatsoever. So generally, a very universal method. Well, so just to note some of the distinctions between the universal method and Mathesis Universalis. Whereas the universal method is cast in opposition to the um, mathematical methods, sorry, cast in opposition to methods of mathematics and syllogistic logic, the Mathesis Universalis is cast as a recovery of a lost art of discovery. Whereas the universal ma method grasps towards the, truths of the discovery of truths in any field whatsoever, by advancing beyond mathematics. The Mathesis Universalis seeks to discover a general science of order and measure encompassing all of the mathematical sciences, universal but more limited in scope. So in addition to the description of the Mathesis Universalis discussed above, the Reguli also provides examples of how such a general mathematical method might be applied in specific situations. Several commentators see these later passages in the Reguli as demonstrating application of the Mathesis Universalis. I'm, I call these in, our, in your handout uh, a, the method of comparison um, you, or the method of discovery that was in the original title because they involve the use of mathematical proportions and relations to discover solutions to given problems. So I'll go through a couple of passages there. Just to say that in the rules for the direction of the mind, the overall goal is to describe a method that could be, uh, that could apply to um, uh, what he calls perfect and imperfect problems, where these are roughly, perfect problems are roughly aligned with the pure mathematics, problems of arithmetic and geometry, and imperfect problems roughly aligned with mixed mathematics. That is, there's something yet to be determined about them because they in involve some uh, experimental portion. This was an unfinished treatise, so he never got, he never completed that whole project, but we have some indications of what it might look like. So in rule 14 on your handout, he says, whenever we deduce something unknown from something already known, it does not follow that we're discovering some new kind of entity, but merely that we're extending our entire knowledge of the topic in question to the point where we perceive that the thing we're looking for participates in this way or that in the nature of the things given in the problem. So there's a relation between the unknowns and the knowns, and that relation is described as some participatory relation. Okay, in rule 17, also on your handout. So the trick here is to treat the unknown ones as if they were known. 
Um, there's no reason why we should not do this, since from the outset of this part of the treatise, our assumption has been that we know that the unknown terms in the problem are so dependent on the known ones that they are wholly determined by them. One of the things that's remarkable about this, this technique is that it, it so immediately aligns with what we now recognize as an algebraic method. That is, it's setting up an equation, a relation between knowns and unknowns. And in fact, that, uh, that becomes the inspiration, uh, some of the inspiration for the geometry. Okay. So, uh, a couple, there's some other, oh, there's, there's a couple of other interesting discussions in mathematics. I'm going to skip that, but I want to go to the geometry now. The geometry is Descartes' only published work on mathematics. In it, he provides an account of how to construct solutions to a class of classical problems of geometrical construction. This fact has at least two important implications for our understanding of the methods that Descartes teaches and employs in that work. First, his geometry is not a work of classical geometrical method of demonstration. It's not a Euclidean geometry in that sense. Descartes' geometry is a work oriented around problem solving. The organizing rationale for the work is his solution to what was called the Pappus four locus problem. And he generalizes his construction of the solution to other types of geometrical problems. For Descartes, the analysis or method of discovery in geometry involves setting up an equation such, as, such that the relevant knowns and unknowns stand in appropriate proportion to one another. The synthesis, so in classical geometry you had two, two ways. You have the an analysis, which is the method of discovery, and synthesis, which is the method of demonstration. The synthesis for Descartes is the construction using a ruler and compass. One of the core features of Descartes' geometry is his novel classification of curves. Um, so he, he says that, um, so because of the way that, we're, as we were mentioning before, the way this gets set up in classical geometry, this amounts to setting boundaries around what justified or acceptable constructions and unjustified or unacceptable ones. For Descartes, the key features of a construction that make them acceptable are continuity of motion, and the exactness of knowledge concerning the relationship between the inputs and the outputs. So the, the, the line used to generate the curve and the points on the curve, there should be a direct relation between those, and it should be clear. For this reason, in contrast to many classical geometers, Descartes allows his mechanical compass to be used in legitimate constructions because each component is clearly and continuously related to the original inputs. Another core feature of the geometry is Descartes' ability to avoid classical problems of incommensurability. This was the main reason why arithmetic and geometry were think, thought of as two distinct disciplines, because we knew that there were magnitudes of geometry that could not be represented as a ratio of counting numbers. Right? So these are the, uh, the um, um, what do we call them? The irrational numbers. Thank you, thank you. Irrational numbers. So, but... Descartes avoids that distinction by simply allowing the practitioner to choose the unit of measure to be whatever unit he wants to fit the problem. So you can choose a, a measure that eliminates the irrationality of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the result. Here Descartes avoids a dogmatic distinction in favor of a more pragmatic one, but one that has deep consequences for the philosophy of mathematics. 
Above all, Descartes' geometry achieves a novel solution to a difficult problem, provides a modern notation, so he comes up with the idea of variables represented by, by uh, Latinate letters with um, numerals, raised numerals to represent powers. That's one of Descartes' innovations, and it's, uh, it, made it makes it a lot easier and simpler to see um, the relationship. The, the prior way was using these things called Cossack notation, which is like a Germanic-derived lettering system to, to get the powers. Um, but uh, He emphasized, places priority on the simplicity and transparency of both discovering and constructing solutions. These characteristics of his geometry also feature prominently in Descartes' mathematical and methodological considerations that derive his view of nature. So Descartes to sum up our discussion of mathematical method, Descartes' arti various articulations of mathematical method make it clear that he is primarily concerned with problem solving. He models his method after the type of knowledge and problem solving techniques that can be found in mathematics, but his method is not a Euclidean style geometric method of, de of deduction. Okay, Con some concluding remarks. Descartes' view of corporeal nature is infamous for its sweeping reconsideration of physics in terms of, that are reducible to mathematical representation. The extended substances of Descartes' physics are, in a sense, as Daniel Garber has said, geometry made real. When he defines corporeal nature in the meditations, Descartes offers us a window into his motivations for considering nature in this way. By examining that definition, we've been able to see that Descartes conceives of corporeal nature as a substance external to the mind, conceived according to the standards of clarity and distinctness, and therefore according to the standards of a sort of generalized mathematics. His reflections on the nature of mathematics and method, and the methods of mathematical problem solving, occupied most of his early productive career, and clearly shaped and influenced his approach to a philosophy of nature.